What's up, everybody? This is Jacob, and you're listening to Theology and Dialogue. What have I been doing this week? I've just uh, turned in my portfolio for review, so that's fun. Um, I've been reading lots of different French people. And I've just wrapped up a couple of weeks teaching process theology at my church. I keep wanting to say Sunday school because I'm from South Carolina and that's what we call it, but it's the adult education forum. But yeah, we've been thinking about process theology, which is a great segue into our episode today. Uh, Today we've got part one of an exciting lecture by Sister Ilya Delio. I've had the privilege of working with her on Christology and Trinitarian Theology. Um, Her classes are an exciting mix of Franciscan theology and spirituality, cosmology and metaphysics all informed by modern science, as you'll see in this lecture. She's the author of a ton of books, um, many on Franciscan thought and spirituality, as well as the intersection of contemporary systematic theology and modern science like for example her work the unbearable wholeness of being god evolution and the power of love and making all things new catholicity cosmology and consciousness if you're into Teilhard de chardin or alfred north whitehead or if you're just generally on team process in some fashion you'll definitely dig her work And if you're not into process thought, but you'd like to be, then her work is a really good place to start. We're going to try moving more toward a 30-minute format, give or take. So we've got the first half hour of the lecture this week, and the next episode we'll have the second half. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at at Theology and Dialogue. Find us on Facebook. Visit our website, theologyanddialogue.org. And leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us out because it boosts our visibility and blah, blah, etc. does good things for us. And I'll make you a deal. If you leave a review, I'll read it on the episode. So, without further ado, here's the first part of Ilya Delia's lecture, Doing Theology in an Unfinished Universe. Enjoy. diehards and coming out in this weather to talk about theology and science. And so I thought I'd begin by just talking about my own theological journey because so many people ask me, how did you get to do theology and science? Uh, And so, you know, I um, was trained as a scientist uh, and then found my way into theology. But my first love actually was patristics. And I uh, wrote an MA thesis at Fordham University on Augustine and happiness in the rule of Augustine. So I was maybe an early, you know, lured by the Augustinians early on. Um, and I loved the way the early church fathers and the medieval writers had this sort of very integral synthesis of things. Um, <clears throat> I wound up working in medieval theology with a, a person at Fordham who had a great capacious mind that could mine like an etch-a-sketch. He could go from the 5th century to the 12th, over to the 20th, back to the 14th, like in one fell swoop you know, of a lecture. And that was Ewart Cousins. Um, and Ewart actually was the one who initiated the Classics of Western Spirituality series. 
And so um, Ewart was a great Bonaventurian scholar. Um, St. Bonaventura was um, one of the great lights of the 13th century, of course, next to Thomas Aquinas. And so I began studying with Ewart on Bonaventure and um, loved Bonaventure because he brought together theology and philosophy and, you might say, cosmology in sort of a unified synthesis of how he envisioned Christ as center. And um, contrary to Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure saw the incarnation as having a metaphysical difference. In other words, it wasn't just incarnation in terms of salvation, but incarnation in terms of philosophy. So I wound up um, writing my dissertation on Bonaventure's Christ mysticism <clears throat> and the centrality of the cross. And, uh, you know, one would have pegged me then as a very classical medievalist, you know. Um, and why I say this is because I have a deep appreciation for how theology was, was formed uh, from the early church into the Middle Ages. And I think part of that formation, integral to that formation, is how these early writers saw that theology is deeply entwined with philosophy. And so, you know, we read about the influence of Aristotle or Avicenna or even Averroes on the thought of Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, how they came up with their understanding of nature, form, even understanding of being, what is being. You know, and Aristotle had clear ideas on those things. But they also, you know, if you were to study in the Middle Ages, contrary to today, you would have had to study things like astrology, physics, in other words, natural philosophy. You would study um, what we call today the sciences. It would have been unheard of not to study those things if you were to even pursue theology. So there is an important role for cosmology in the shape of theology. And it's something we never really consider, but all our theologies, however we're doing them, have within them an implicit cosmology. In other words, we have a, an implicit ordering of a whole um, with whatever we're talking about with regard to theology. And Raymond Panikar, one of the great um, thinkers of the 20th century, in his book, The Rhythm of Being, actually his Gifford lectures, says that theology is not a particular science that theology pertains to the whole. Um, and he bases that really on the very name of God as a cosmological notion. He says there's no cosmos without God, there's no ordered whole without God, and no God without cosmos. So the relationship between cosmos and theology is not accidental, it's essential, you know, to use medieval language here. Um, and that's why when we talk about theology, you know, and we talk about God and the things of God oftentimes, and this is where I sort of get like, we have, we have implicit understandings that are spanning different cosmologies oftentimes. And I think for the most part, our God talk today still has within it a medieval cosmology. And that cosmology is a static fixed cosmology with the earth as center and the human as center of the earth, even if we use language like form or substance or person, you know, a per I think we're still using Boethius's notion of person as a, a substance with rational nature, 
you know, and even the question of nature. If we say that we're human nature, what is nature? I mean, Aristotle had ideas on that. But are those still hold true for today? So I do think we need to take note that theology as we have known it grew up with a particular understanding of, a, of cosmology and God in relation to that cosmology. But you know, Thomas and Bonaventure would both agree that um, no real understanding of God without understanding of nature. And so there was, you know, the medievalists would never separate out you know, nature from, from God. So they would say that to study nature is a path to God. You know, we know Thomas's five ways, which include, you know, a, a, an observation of nature. So in the Middle Ages, science was the natural philosophy at the service of theology. It was known as natural philosophy. And, um, you know, just to kind of underscore the points here that, you know, the aspects of this medieval philosophy, of this natural philosophy, included an immutable, limited good of creation, what Aristotle called prime matter, um, the change of forms over time, what Aristotle called hylomorphism, uh, the temporality of the world, the world has a finite beginning and a finite end, and again, the notion of person as substance of rational nature. So at Thomas Aquinas drew a whole metaphysics, like what are the principles, even the philosophical principles that underscore this theological understanding of God, world, and person? And it was very simple in two, two parts. Everything flows from God, emanatio, and everything returns to God, reductus, right? So everything is flowing from and returning to with God as the transcendent other. That's just a brief spin through medieval theology to say that, you know, as John Hott says, you know, a religion built on stability and immutability is not prepared for a cosmic order based on change. Change is the operative word. You know, if you were to say, what's the one thing constant about, you know, that science tells us today? Nature changes, you know, and that's in a sense what we um, understood ever since Copernicus discovered that the earth was changing. It was moving, you know, around the sun. That was our first real change that didn't go so well for theology, right? So we know that, um, that the church, the Catholic church resisted um, the findings of heliocentrism as being contrary to scripture. That uh, even as Cardinal Bellarmine placed poor Galileo under house arrest, he said that this is, we can't hold this. This seems to be contrary to what scripture is saying that God created the world, you know, in six days, and on the seventh day rested. So how can the world be shifting? I think what happened from the Middle Ages into the um, early period of the rise of science is we developed two cosmologies. And I think ever since the 16th century, we have had two functional cosmologies. A religious cosmology, where we have all our God talk and, and understanding to God, and a cosmology of science. And we have learned to live comfortably with a cognitive dissonance, you know, with two minds. But we know deep down inside there's something off. It doesn't quite hold together. And I think that's a lot of the struggle, you know, even today. I think the, you know, in, in trying to, to understand God now in the face of a changing world, I think Descartes made an effort, you know, to, to safeguard a knowing process that would not be subject to the whims of change. And so he separates out, you might say, the mind and the body, or the soul and the body. And so Descartes, you know, in that kind of um, move that he makes in philosophy, 
gives way to um, a mind that's separated from matter, in other words, leaving the material world stripped of any sacred meaning, so a world of just stuff, and therefore, you know, the emphasis on the self-thinking subject, you know, the I think, therefore I am way, which paves this way for a mechanical philosophy, you know, a philosophy based on structures of relationship, but not so much structures of relationship, just on the mechanisms of, of things. And that's, in a sense, where Newton picks up and builds on Cartesian philosophy to describe the laws of nature. This is how things work, but this has nothing to do with God. God is just the overseer, the creator, the one who puts it into being. And, you know, we kind of developed, even as we look through the trajectories of Catholic theology and understanding of personhood, that became more mechanical in some ways, more dualistic. The soul had priority over the body, you know, the spiritual life over, over the physical life. Um, and I think uh, with the complexities of, of theology emerging, we began to become very separated from the cosmos, really to the point where by the 20th century we had no real consciousness that you know, we're related to the cosmos. We treated the earth and the, and, and the things of earth like a background for us, you know, like the whole creation's a stage for human salvation, you know, and God's doing things um, for us. So as Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit priest, said, you know, the artificial separation between humans and the cosmos is at the root of our contemporary moral confusion. So here he's placing the ethical question within the context of the cosmological question. Unless we know that we're part of a whole, we really can't make choices, you know, as, as belonging to that whole. So all of this to say is that Science has taken off in the modern period, um, irrespective of religion. In other words, it sort of left religion behind, saying religion is just too static, too fixed, too old, and not keeping abreast of what we're now knowing. So this is really about knowing, right? It's about knowledge, in, in a sense, knowing knowledge in the pursuit of truth, knowledge in the pursuit of, of a deepening of life. Uh, and our cosmology you know, shifted in the early 20th century as, as Einstein and others began to realize that Newton's concepts of space and time were really did not hold true. Through a series of experiments and thought experiments, what Einstein realized is that space is actually something that is relative um, and that's forming. As he began to reflect on light and the speed of light and things moving in relation to the speed of light, he recognized that, that space and time are new, not two separate things, nor are they just static and fixed. And so from Einstein, we began to develop an understanding, and this is hard for us to get around, and I think this is still where theology is still in the old concepts of space and time and the old concepts of a static universe. What Einstein says to us is, no, it's space-time. First of all, this is a single dimension of a multi-dimensional universe. And this is unfolding. In other words, scientists can now trace back uh, the beginning of this space-time to a point that they call the singularity, which has, in a sense, given rise to what we call a Big Bang universe, that there's you know, a point in time, so to speak, or not even in time. Time itself is created, right? It's just part of space. So scientists, the language fails because we don't know exactly what's going on at this point. 
all we know is that there's a something that emerges about 13.8 billion years ago. And that, you know, that very tiny, small something is so hot and dense, it, it rapidly expands. And, you know, again, this, I leave this to, to scientists, to physicists, to, to tell us what these forces are, these forces of expansion. Some call it dark energy. Um, and then there's dark matter that prevents the force of contraction. But what we do know is our cosmos is this, is this dynamic, expanding universe. That has, a, that has a type of beginning. Is it finite? In a certain degree, yes. But then scientists are saying, well, it may emerge from you know, two black holes from a previous universe. We don't know. You know. So the question of eternal universe is not out the window. right? It continues to, to exist. Um, second is we know that uh, space, it's, and here's the amazing thing, space itself is being created as the universe expands. So even if we talk about God creating, God does not create in space, you know, as if God makes things in space and time. That space and time is itself part of the creating process. And it's hard for us to get our heads around that, quite honestly. But what we also know is that this universe as it expands in such a way, and we know it's expanding because we can measure light. And through the measurement of light, we can re recognize that um, you know, the planets are moving further and further away from us. And what scientists predict is that this universe may expand indefinitely, which, from the point of theology, we have not dealt with, really, at all. You know, we continue to talk about um, eschatology within something of a quasi-static fixed universe, you know, the end time or the end things. Uh, and what does that mean within now a cosmos that has sort of an indefinite future ahead of it? From the point of, you know, the micro world, the world of nature, um, in the early 20th century, we began to realize what Aristotle would say, this is, you know, material substance. This is stuff. Well, now we know that that stuff is energy. Energy is sort of the name of the game. That is what stuff is. Um, and again, leave it to Einstein to begin to realize that what we call matter um, is mass that can be converted to energy, right? So matter can be converted to energy, and energy can be converted to matter without changing the mass or the heaviness of the object. So again, it's, so if we talk about the human body, for example, you know, what is the body? Is it, is it material stuff? Is it something that's concrete? Or are we talking about energy that's packed, you might say, into form? And that's a whole different concept than you know, certainly what Boethius might have imagined. It, it gets weirder, of course, you know, as scientists go on and realize that um, what we call matter has a rather mysterious nature to it. And this is, in a sense, the um, contribution of quantum physics, that in the early 20th century, scientists began to realize that we cannot say for sure what matter is, that it seems to have properties of both particle and wave, and that the only way we can really say what something is requires an act of observation. 
it requires then now the inclusion of the mind in what's being observed, which collapses what's observed into an event. So the mind, with quantum physics, begins to play an active role in the shaping of matter. This has been radical, and it's something we haven't dealt with. We still treat, certainly in theology, I think we treat the mind as something that's particular to the human, you know, particular to um, you know, our relationship with God, and what we're saying is, no. Mm -mm. From the point of quantum physics, what we're saying is that consciousness seems to be present in the Big Bang universe, in the material universe, from the beginning. Um, that the nature of this universe seems to be mind-like from the beginning. And, you know, quantum physics also begins to, you know, entertain the possibility that matter is not determinate, that we can't say for sure, you know, what something is. That Werner Heisenberg, a German physicist, um, postulated in the 20th century that, you know, the more we measure something, as we measure it, we alter its characteristic of, of momentum. So every time we make an act of observation, we're altering a property or two of that event, which means we can never say for certain. And so the question of ontological certainty then emerges as a new question. And that's, again, a, a great challenge for theology because we talk in terms of ontological certainty. This is what God is, this is what something is, this is how it's working. From the point of physics we say, no, not necessarily true. Quantum physics also has pointed out that you know, the interaction of particles is such that once they are separated, they are forever interacting, even at vast distances. So the notion of quantum entanglement means that a particle separated from another particle that it has interacted with can affect that particle over vast, vast distances in time, which we call this non-local action at a distance. Now, this phenomenon is beginning to be used in theology to talk about God's relation to the world. Right. So this is where, you know, so you can, I, no, you're probably saying, oh, why is she talking about all this science? Let's back up and say, why talk about science? Because the only way we can really even begin to talk about the things of God is if where God is revealing God's self, and that's in nature, right, as well as scripture. And so what we're saying is that these insights from science give us clues as to how God is in relationship to us and what we are becoming in God. So what we are saying from the point of science is that nature is not discrete stuff. Nature seems to be entangled fields of energy, fields within fields within fields. So that even the term field opens up, you might say, a non-dualistic way of talking about matter and spirit or energy and matter. You know, even if we talk about the human person, which we consist, uh, you know, continue to do. Are we, we're matter and spirit. We're body and soul. Well, what does that mean now in terms of what we now know from science in terms of energy fields? So, um, again, you know, as I hear uh, how we talk about, even in theology, how God acts, right? Uh, efficient causality, to use Aristotle's language. Formal causality, those things no longer really hold true in 
the world of nature as we now know it. There is no, certainly there's no linear causality that, you know, there's a, a, an unmoved mover, you know, might say, as first cause who moves things. What we do know is causality is now framed in the language of complex dynamical systems. Now that's a big term, but what we're saying is that nature works in terms of energy fields and energy flow. And the way, the way these fields interact uh, can bootstrap and in, you know, um, have an influence on, on one thing to another. So without getting you know, too much you know, into um, you know, the mechanisms here of, of quantum physics, what we are seeing is that language conveys meaning, and our language in theology is often conveying a meaning that is out of sync with what science is now telling us about nature. Um, because even the word being, you know, I think needs to shift. We're not just human beings. We are, from the point of, of physics, we're really interbeings. We're really, we're really fields within fields. I mean, if you look from the bottom up, so that interconnectedness is, in a sense, one of, one of our most apt descriptions of our physical reality. Uh, this is not like a, a new age term imported to say, oh, that's so nice, you know. <laughs> um, and Paul Dirac, who got the Nobel Prize in 1933, you know, they had one of those little dinners for him the night before. So he got up and gave this little talk, and he said, this universe on, on the quantum level is so interactive that even if you pick a flower on Earth, you will move the farthest star. In other words, that, that saying was meant to convey the deep interconnectedness of our lives in this universe, that we are not some kind of distinct and discrete beings over and above nature, that we are emerging from this nature, and therefore our actions affect what happens in other parts of the universe, as well as our thoughts, although I'll leave consciousness you know, a little bit out of this discussion so we don't go too far afield, but um, what we are saying is that we have made a radical paradigm shift in the 20th century. Um, certainly from you know, the uh, late 18th and 19th centuries, we're moving from a determinate universe to an indeterminate one. From certainty to uncertainty. From predictability to ambiguity. From a world of control to a world of trust. So that's all for this week. Tune in again next time to hear the rest of the lecture. Like, tweet, share, etc. Uh, and leave a review and I'll read it. So we'll see you back next time. <laughs>